take a moment to compose in your mind a brief spiritual resume. Don't be bashful. I know that we're all flawed and are always striving to do better in our spiritual walk, but put your best foot forward. Make things sound as good as possible. That's usually what we do, right? When we compose a resume, we you know, spruce up the, the language a little bit to make it sound what we did is better than what we may have done. I saw this post on Instagram this week where somebody said, how to write, I changed a light bulb on your resume. And the translation is, for your resume, single-handedly deployed illumination solution, transforming workplaces, simultaneously enhancing workplace safety as well as productivity. <laughs> so resumes are where we try to describe the best of who we are and what we've done, right? So don't be bashful. Compose in your mind a brief spiritual resume of your life. Maybe you would have your spiritual gifts listed on there, your God-given abilities and talents, the things that God has accomplished through you. Maybe you would have a whole section of, of commitments that you've made to serve God, and, and maybe you could even fill it up just with stuff you've done here at Calamasa Church, teaching a Sabbath school class, leading worship, preparing a meal for an event or for someone who's sick, decorating for a special program, being in a special program, helping with community outreach, volunteering at the food pantry, mission trips, greeting someone at the door, running sound and projection or the lights hundreds of times, giving your tithes and offerings, and we could go on and on. Maybe you'd have another section of your devotion life and you would list the many hours you've spent in prayer and how many times you have read through Scripture. No doubt you would have many things, even though we're not perfect, you'd have many things on your spiritual resume that you would be proud of and that God would be proud of. It is good to do good things for God. The Bible tells us that over and over again. What is it that, that James says in his book? Like, if you have faith without works, then, then your faith is as good as demon faith, right? Even they believe in God. Faith without works is dead. In my favorite text in Scripture where Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through Jesus Christ, your faith through Jesus Christ. He also says you are God's masterpiece created to do good works for him. It is good to do good for God. But as we continue our series in Philippians today, we get reminded by someone who had like the best spiritual resume of all to be very careful about one particular thing when it comes to the good works we do for God. So if you got your Bible with me in whatever format, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you, for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And let me just pause right here. Many of you may already know, but who he's most likely talking about when he says those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh are those Judaizing missionaries, those Christians who, uh, who believed that you had to basically become Jewish in order to be saved. And back then, Gentile Christians who were still uncircumcised were sometimes referred to 
by those in the Jewish faith as dogs. So Paul is kind of turning some of that language back on them, and, and he's trying to show the seriousness of trying to adopt something else in addition to Jesus in order to be saved to his largely Gentile believers in Philippi. Continuing on, he says in verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But then Paul says next, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's warning here is to be careful not to put our confidence in that resume of ours. If anyone had a righteous resume, it was Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law said, came from the tribe of kings, followed the law to a T, a prominent Pharisee. No one was better at religion than Paul. He was a superstar. Now, Paul was persecuting the church prior to his conversion, which was not good, and he probably had some legalistic things he was dealing with, but I'm sure he did a lot of good things, too. I'm sure there's a lot of things that Paul had on his resume that were things to be proud of, even pre-Damascus Road experience. But he says, whatever were gains to me before, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. No matter how impressive it may be, we can never, ever put our confidence in our religious resume. That confidence is solely reserved for Christ alone and his grace. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, Darren, we know that. There's no mystery there. You're preaching to the choir. But I think we need a reminder of this. At least I often need a reminder of this because I think it is so tempting to be self-righteous and put our confidence in what we have accomplished. I have had the honor so many times of being able to visit with people who are nearing the end of their life. And in those visits, I have the privilege of hearing those individuals reflect on all kinds of things in their life, things they're still struggling with, maybe sometimes struggling with going through that very thing, wondering why God has allowed it to happen, but also being at peace for a lot of, of the life that they lived and, and thankful for their family, grieving about not being able to be with their family on this earth anymore. A lot of things we talk about. And sometimes, in fact, I would say oftentimes, I will hear, you know, Darren, I don't know if I've done enough to be with Jesus. And, and these are people who have impeccable spiritual resumes, who have influenced so many people for the kingdom of God, people I admire and look up to and think, if I just have a fraction of the faithful life that you lived, I'll be doing great. And even they sometimes in, in those last moments doubt, have I done enough? It can be tempting to want to put our confidence in the flesh. There's a lot of weeks, family, 
Today was, was, was one of those times where I sit in that front pew waiting to come up here and preach, and a thought comes in my mind. Have I done enough this week, God, to be able to get up there and have you use me effectively? Even though I know better. <laughs> have, I, have I prayed enough? Have I studied enough? No, I haven't. I tried, but I have, it's not near enough. Have I been good enough? No. Have I been a, a good enough father, a husband, a friend? Have I practiced what I've preached, what I'm going to preach about well enough so I'm not a hypocrite when I get up here? No, I haven't ever done it enough. The thought still creeps in my mind even though I know better. It can be tempting to want to put confidence in the flesh. In one of Henry Nouwen's books, he tells about a lesson of trust, of confidence in God that he learned from a family of trapeze artists known as the Flying Rodleys. He visited with them for a time after watching them fly through the air with such elegant poise, he said. When he asked one of the flyers the secret to their art, the acrobat gave this reply. The secret is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, my catcher, I have to simply stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron. The worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I am not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grabbed Joe's wrist, I might break them, or he might break mine, and that would be the end of us both. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must have confidence with outstretched arms that the catcher will be there for him. In the great trapeze act of salvation, God is the catcher, amen? And we are simply the flyers. He has never dropped anyone. He will not drop you. His grip is sturdy and his arms are open. Your job is just to fly and trust in his ability to catch you. Then as we keep reading in the text, Paul seems to turn it up a notch. Uh, and I don't think I, I told you this, Jordan. I'm just going to read the whole rest of the text here. Um, I ran out of time. We are not going to get to verse 10 and 11, but we'll at least read them now. What is more, verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, which is what we were just talking about, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation even in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. There's so much in there that we could unpack, but we don't have time to do it all. I just want to draw your attention especially to that phrase where, where Paul says, everything in fact, not just my spiritual resume, everything is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as Lord. He goes as far to say that everything else is just what? Garbage. 
And, and many of you probably all know this. Maybe you have an older translation that even has the word in there. That Greek word for garbage can also denote things like kitchen scraps or manure. In some Greek texts, the term refers specifically to human excrement. Paul is not mincing words here. He basically says, compared to the value of knowing Jesus, everything else is a big pile of, you know what? And maybe you're also thinking, Darren, we get it. We're with you. We know. But I also think this is a reminder we need to have regularly because it can be so tempting to think that the things of this world will bring us satisfaction or true fulfillment and lasting joy compared to having Jesus. And Paul isn't saying evil things. He's saying everything. It can include the best of things we can experience. Even the best of things are just like human waste <laughs> compared to knowing Jesus. One summer, I worked uh, as a recruiter for Pacific Union College. I was hired along with some other students uh, and we were all musicians, and our job was, it was really fun, actually, to go to different summer camps and camp meetings uh, for a summer, and we were going to be the praise band for their program that week, and it allowed us to do some really um, uh, good relationship building with the kids and recruiting. And one of our stops, our last stop, actually, was at Pine Springs Ranch for one of their teen camps. Uh, I was between my sophomore and junior year in college, and we actually partnered with the La Sierra team to go do that that week. It was, it was fun to work with them. Anyway, when we got there, and Manny Vitug was the, was the director back then, uh, he had everything planned as far as their speaker, their camp pastor for the main camp and some of the others, uh, but he had no camp pastor for the wakeboarding camp. And so he asked our team, would anybody like to volunteer to go over to the wakeboarding camp? You're out there on the Colorado River all week, just intense wakeboarding to be the camp pastor. And I immediately shot my hand up, even though I had never done anything like that before in my life. And I had little public speaking experience because wakeboarding sounded fun. Uh, so I volunteered and um, uh, that I should also mention some of you would like to know Derek and Curtis Knight were the counselors in charge of that camp, so it was kind of cool to go and hang out with them for a week. I was excited to go wakeboarding, but also kind of scared about the whole speaking thing. I hadn't done it that much, never been a camp pastor, and I spent the entire night, I pulled an all-nighter, praying and studying my Bible, and, and somehow I outlined like six or seven talks, you know, and hoped, hoped this was good enough. And you know what was crazy? I got there, and, and God really blessed it in spite of me. It was an amazing experience. I remember being impressed that night to kind of talk about dealing with, with tough stuff in life. I had some close friends, one who was, whose parents were going through a, a really tough divorce, another one who had lost a, a member of their family. I can just remember thinking of those things and, and wondering, maybe there's some kids going through some stuff that come to this camp. And, and I just felt impressed to talk about the way God could, can help us through those things, gives us hope and, and sustains us. And, and it connected with a lot of the kids there. There were so many kids there that were hurting at home and at school and going through different challenges and it was amazing to see how God worked. And some of those kids who had the toughest stuff to deal with made commitments to follow Jesus. It was incredible. And you would think that that was the most valuable thing I took away from that week, ministering to those kids and watching them discover the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. But it wasn't the most valuable thing I took away from that week. 
I need to back up a little bit here and give you a few details. Number one, I was a very poor college student who was struggling with being poor that summer, and PUC paid me a nice amount of money to recruit for them, but it was all going to be in, guess what, scholarship money, okay? I wasn't going to see any of that. So even though I was uh, working really hard for them, and I, they gave me a lot of money towards my school bill, which was great. My parents were grateful for that, too. I did not get any cash in the bank. And so I was struggling with, you know, being poor that summer and going to be at the end of the summer not having really any money in the bank. Second detail to remember is that out there on the Colorado River, it's very hot, very bright, and I did not have any sunglasses. I don't think I had ever owned any sunglasses before, and I didn't think it was going to be a big deal, but that first day out there was brutal. I was like this the whole time, and, and I could barely get through it, and so the next day I asked Derek if I could go with him to the gas station uh, when he was going to fill up the boats with gas, and, and I could buy a cheap pair of sunglasses, and I found the cheapest pair of sunglasses in that gas station. They were $2.99, they had these black frames with like tiger stripes on them and neon green colored lenses. They were hideous, but they were the cheapest thing and they did the job. So that afternoon, we were out on the river, kids were wakeboarding, and I was sporting my new shades. And one of those kids who gave his um, heart to God that week, Matt, was sitting next to me. I didn't know him that well on that second day. Um, but he was sitting next to me, and he had left his sunglasses uh, back in his tent at camp. And all the kids had gone um, wakeboarding, and Derek turned to me and said, Darren, you want to go out for a little bit? We got time. I said, sure, it'd be fun. And so I took my sunglasses off, and I handed them to Matt sitting next to me. Would you hold these for me, Matt, I'm gonna, while I go out and, and wakeboard? Sure, he said. And he immediately put them on his face because he had forgotten his. And when he put them on, he's like, dude, Pastor Darren, these are awesome. I was like, oh, yeah, you like them? He's like, yeah, and he would, like, move his head around, like, up and down. He's like, man, my sunglasses, they don't fit like this. They don't stay on my face. These, these like, totally stick to my face, and they're comfortable, and I love the way the, the, the world looks to these neon green lenses. Like, he was going on and on about it. And I was like, hey, I'm glad you like them. You know, at the end of camp, if you want, you can just take them. They're, they're really, like, cheap. I bought them for, like, two bucks at the gas station. And uh, you've already got some, you can just keep them. And I went into the water, didn't think anything of it, wakeboarded for a little bit, came back in, sat down next to Matt, and Matt was like, you know, I've been thinking about it. I would like to trade you my sunglasses for your sunglasses. And I was like, no, Matt, you don't need to do that. Uh, just, you can have these when we're done and keep the ones that you have. He's like, no, I hate the ones I have. They always fall off my face. They don't look good. I don't think they're cool at all. And I'm thinking, well, he's probably got bad sunglasses too, so what's the big deal? I, so finally, he wouldn't give up. I said, okay, when we get back to camp, if you want to trade me your glasses for mine, that's fine. So we get back to shore. He makes a beeline to his tent, and he comes out with these super nice-looking glasses that say Spy Optic on the side. And for those of you who don't know, Spies are a pretty nice brand that can range from anywhere to $1 to $200 in worth. And he said, here are my sunglasses. I want to trade these for yours. And I was like, Matt, those are spies. Those are really expensive glasses. I cannot, in good conscience, trade my glasses, which are worth nothing, 
for those. No, I, I, I insist. I hate these glasses. I don't want them. I'll, I'll give them away anyway. And I was like, no, don't give them away. Keep them. They're valuable. You could sell them or something. And you can just have mine when the week is over. A week went on and on. And finally, he, he just wouldn't give up. And he said, you know, I didn't even buy these. No one in my family bought them for me. I was at the beach a month ago, and I found them buried in the sand. So then I got this kind of twisted idea in my head that maybe God was giving me a miracle, <laughs> a way of rewarding me for all the hard work that I was doing kind of pro bono all summer, right? I wasn't going to be able to buy anything nice for myself, let alone glasses like this, and, and this kid was gifting it to me. So I made the trade with a 13-year-old camper feeling kind of guilty, but also that it was God's will at the same time. <laughs> and let me tell you, I loved these sunglasses. They were the best. I wore them all day, every day. I would do my morning devotions wearing the sunglasses. I had a special spot for them right next to my sleeping bag in the tent at night so that they would be protected, you know? I went everywhere with those sunglasses. I love them. And I really thought, God, this is a great gift. Thank you so much. Well, the week of camp ends, and I told you how special it was, right? And that was the last trip of the summer. So I was flying uh, from Southern California back to Texas, where my parents lived at the time, to spend a few weeks with them before school started. And my flight from wherever it was in Southern California, I think it was Ontario, to, to Phoenix, got delayed a little bit, and so I only had about 10 minutes time for my layover before they were going to start boarding. And this is where the story gets a little TMI. Uh, Beamy doesn't usually, she's not here today. I think she stayed home because she gets embarrassed when I have told the story before. But I had to use the restroom. It's a part of life. It wasn't number one, it was the other one. And <laughs> I was debating if I should go. It's a public restroom. I have to board in 10 minutes, but I, you know, I know there's a lot of medical professionals here. You understand it's a fact of life. I had to use the restroom. And so I said, I, I think I have time. I'll go, go do it. And uh, I went into the, into the restroom. There was nobody in there. I thought, great, this is going to be good. There's nobody in any of the stalls. I picked the middle stall, put my uh, carry-on down, my backpack next to it, and I had taken my sunglasses off my eyes and I put them right here on my shirt. And just when I had done that, someone comes violently, panic in a panic, like grunting and, and, you know, making all kinds of noises like he was not well into the restroom. And of course, he picks a stall right next to mine. And it was obvious with what transpired in just a few moments that this man was having a health emergency. Maybe he had some food poisoning or something. And I was seriously <laughs> reconsidering what I was going to do. And before I could make a decision as to whether or not to leave, I was just standing there thinking, you know, maybe I should go. Uh, the toilet in the stall next to me flushes, and the plumbing decides to not work. And so all of that water in the toilet, along with what this gentleman contributed to it, <laughs> came out, splashed on the ground, and began to come into my stall. And so you can imagine, I picked up my carrier and I picked up my backpack. I had like one foot off the ground and I was trying to get out of the thing. I said, I got to get out of here as quickly as possible. And I did and, and I got out. 
unscathed, and they were already boarding. And I thought, I'm glad I dodged a bullet there, got on the plane, and thought for a moment, I I should have probably asked if he needed some help, maybe gotten somebody. I was really selfish, but I just wanted to get out of there ASAP, sat down the not too much long after the pilot says, the cabin doors are closed, please prepare for takeoff. And I leaned back and I put my hands on my chest for my glasses and they're gone. In the hustle and bustle of trying to get out of there without being, you know, impacted at all, they had fallen. And I sat there in my seat thinking, oh, my beautiful sunglasses were washed away in all of that filth. I was just picturing them in a... Yeah, I'm sorry if that's what you're picturing in your mind now, too. And maybe you are thinking, Darren, this is a little inappropriate for a sermon illustration, and you could be right. You, you could be right. But I, in my defense, I am not the one who brought the subject up first. Paul did. It's right here in the text. Right? He used the word... And when I thought, I was angry at first, but when I kept thinking, because I couldn't get out of my head, my beautiful sunglasses floating away in all that filth, it gave me some perspective. They were such nice sunglasses, but compared to seeing those kids discover the worth of knowing Jesus, they were just a bunch of waste and garbage. And I had forgotten that. And if it didn't happen at the airport, I would have lost those glasses inevitably some other time or would have damaged them somehow. I can't tell you how many pairs of sunglasses I've had over the past 20 years. Dozens of them. They're not worth anything. But ministering to those kids, seeing them enter into a relationship with Jesus is something that will be treasured for eternity. Family, I want to leave you with two simple appeals today. The first is the one that Paul gives in the opening verses where he says, watch out. I I want you to watch out. Watch out for those who may try to pull you into the trap of trusting your own spiritual resume. Watch out for those who teach you that you've got to be the one to catch God and not let him be the one to catch you. Maybe you're the one that you need to watch out for in that. Maybe you're like me and sometimes you're the one that puts that pressure on yourself. You're the one that keeps defaulting into self-righteousness and putting your confidence in what you've accomplished. I want you to watch out because our spiritual resumes are important and can and should have many wonderful line items on them, but they don't deserve our confidence one bit. Only Jesus does. And the second part of the appeal that I have for you today is to have the right perspective There's a lot of things we can seek to gain in this world. And you know, Southern California, it's hard not to get into this mindset, this mode that we've got to accumulate so many things in this world in order to be fully satisfied, in order to have fulfillment or lasting joy, but nothing we find will do that. Only God can satisfy. So seek a relationship with Jesus. I know it's cliche, but we need to be reminded. Don't let anything else take priority over your knowing Jesus. And you'll discover that everything really is just garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus.
Thank you, Lord, for being a God who is available for us to know so intimately. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.